Welcome to the China Institute podcast, China Matters. I'm your host Jia Wang. The Communist Party of China, founded nearly a century ago, with only a handful of members, has now grown to a membership of almost 90 million, and is one of the most powerful political parties in the world. The party's influence on the country and its people is immense. From the direction of its economic and foreign policies to the development of the Chinese society, how has the party evolved? Can the party successfully adapt to the new challenges China faces in the world and at home? We're very glad to have Professor Jeremy Paltiel with us today. Professor Paltiel is a professor of political science at Carleton University in Ottawa, and he published widely on topics relating to China and its foreign relations. So,、uh, Professor Paltiel, welcome to the China Institute podcast. Thank you. The Communist Party of China is, is definitely massive. One in fourteen Chinese is a party member. So, who actually make up this party membership, and how has the party evolved, especially in recent years? Well, the party,、um, I, the bulk of the membership is really made up of officials at various levels. And、uh, it's come a long way from when it was a mass party of working-class people. Today, most people are recruited either already when, once they've become professionals, or at、um, university, one way or the other. And、um, the overwhelming majority of, of new recruits tend to be. Uh, College-educated,、uh, better educated people. In fact, something like 50 percent of graduate students are members of the party, and、um, and at least 50 percent of undergraduates apply to join the party. Though many fewer actually、um, are accepted into the party because it's a, a long process, normally taking about two years. Before you can be from the moment of first application to become accepted as a member of the Communist Party, really the the most、um, core membership really is officials at various levels. Some areas are very high concentration. Probably around fifty percent of、um, serving military soldiers are members of the party. All of the officers. Um, probably around 50% of police as well、uh, are are members of the Communist Party,、uh, but of course that doesn't make up all the 90 million,、uh, because if you even add out all those figures together, you will get less than three or four million people. But the most people would be people in managerial professional positions uh, throughout um, China. Clearly, more concentrated in the state-owned sector than in the private sector. And the days when you have a large number of working-class members, even in the state-owned industries, is still actually no longer the case. And、uh, what you have seen in recent years, just in the very recent years, is a, a much bigger push to create party cells, even in private enterprises and even foreign-owned enterprises. Yeah, that's really interesting, and、uh, and that's one of the recent, more recent developments that uh, uh, the uh, 
the, the Communist Party also encourage uh, the establishment of these party cells and and then uh, sort of political study sessions of its members, uh, even in private enterprises. How is that received? Well, it's seen as basically no choice. I mean, even earlier they were encouraged to do this, and, and sometimes uh, they would be grumbling, especially sometimes among foreign-owned enterprises, say basically because the secretary has to be paid, and so basically you have to have somebody who's now considered part of management who you don't control, who has to be paid out of a company salary. So that's sometimes odd. Now, of course, private industry people always do want to have a, uh, a window into what the party is because of the decision-making. It's a decision-making powers. And, um, and often, even before they had party branches, and even when they themselves are unqualified to be party members, they would often um, join the affiliated democratic, so-called democratic parties, the eight parties that are affiliated with the Communist Party. And in that case, they might make it onto the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, which allows them some say on impending regulation and legislation. So, uh, in that sense, that part of the evolution is not so extreme. However, and the other question, of course, is it's one thing in the state-owned enterprises where the party and the state are essentially two sides of the same coin. But in a private enterprise where um, management is supposedly in the hands of the shareholders, um, then the question becomes what is the role of the party in a private enterprise and are you talking about people who are not shareholders in the enterprise taking a role in the management of the enterprise. Now, of course, in other countries, you have some aspects of that in this sense, like in, in Germany, they have co-determination and members of the trade union um, have sit on management boards, and th that's not entirely unusual. However, what we've seen in very recent years, especially since just before the 19th Party Congress and after the 19th Party Congress, is uh, a complete centralization of power under the Communist Party and the revival of a slogan that uh, Mao Zedong brought up in 1964, uh, which is a kind of ditty which sort of rhymes in Chinese, which says, North, South, East, West, Middle, the party leads everywhere. And, um, and that has meant not just a kind of ditty, but it meant that, for example, many, the government is now, um, there's a state council, the cabinet is now subordinated to the party. Some ministries are themselves subordinated to inner party organizations, such as the Ministry of Culture or the State Radio and Television Commission are now subordinated directly to the party's propaganda department, or as they like to call themselves in English, the publicity department. Um, the um, the State Nationalities Commission is subordinated to the United Front Work Committee. Um, and so you have a complete pyramid, if you like, ending up with Xi Jinping himself, uh, who is a leader of all these, uh, something like eight or nine leading small groups inside the party. And also a very unusual uh, new development that's taken place over the last three or 
three or four years where all the members of the standing committee of the Politburo personally report to Xi Jinping both Orally, exactly. so, uh, what do you see? Uh, I mean, this writing. has been a trend, as you uh, just suggested. Um, when President Xi Jinping became uh, the leader of China, also the general party secretary of mm -hmm. the Communist Party, so there's also other uh, indications of, um, say, these uh, the party ask party members to celebrate this political birthday, uh, the day that they become a party oh, member, and yeah. exactly, and also downloading apps mm -hmm. to to do their political yeah. studies and then there are like scores they will be checked upon every once in a while. So there seems to be a trend that uh, uh, the uh, it's almost a return to more ideological education and party loyalty, maybe more control over mm -hmm. members. Um, and what do you think uh, perhaps President Xi leadership trying to achieve through this process? Well, if you want to get to the bottom of the story, as I understand it, um, there's a couple of uh, uh, speech now was republished from Xi Jinping in 2013, just after he took power, and also a very interesting essay by the senior intellectual um, Dong Yuan. It's published in the New York Times, but um, he himself was used to work at the Central Party School, and his argument is persuasive that two trends happen. Um, on the one hand, after the 2008 financial crisis and, and some of the problems the United States was uh, experiencing throughout the world and because of the Iraq war, etc., certainly President Xi or Xi Jinping, when he came to power, was convinced that Chinese governance was not inferior to Western governance, if anything, perhaps superior. The other thing was also that ever since um, the reform and opening up of 1978-79, there has been a kind of defensiveness, if you like, uh, in terms of uh, the party and the party ideology. And um, in the sense that somehow, although the party was still in charge and, party, and, and the determination was that the party would be leading China this is a historic decision that will never be overcome. Nonetheless, there was this kind of lingering sense that perhaps we're not on the right side of history. And, and also the, the collapse of the Soviet Union made that even clearer. And when Xi Jinping came to power, he made everybody study the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it becomes a big uh, issue in terms of his thing. His uh, approach to governance and so what he wants is to beat back the notion that the party's ideology has been hollowed out, that essentially the Marxism doesn't mean anything, that, that the party leadership is a slogan, and that um, our governance is somehow, if anything, at least exceptional or otherwise perhaps not quite modern. And so what he's, instead he wants to emphasize is that um, Chinese governance, party governance, is a valid, viable, long-term alternative with its own strengths, which comes from three roots, and he has spelled these out. Chinese traditional culture, the Chinese tradition, and its long-standing uh, traditions of governance, going back 
2,000 years, including some of the thoughts around governance, and, he, and Xi Jinping uses a lot of classical quotations in his work. Secondly, the revolutionary tradition of the Chinese Communist Party, Mao, Mao Zedong thought, but also the whole party since its founding in 1921. And thirdly, what he calls uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, that is to say, the experience of China on, after the reform, or perhaps so, so or we're going to put it this way, a kind of synthesis of traditional culture, Mao Zedong thought, Deng Xiaoping theory, in theory in Xi Jinping thought. Uh, and this is a kind of synthesis which he believes and wants everyone else to carry out is a viable, competitive, if you like, um, form of governance and leadership for the contemporary world. So clearly it's quite a blend of many different school of thoughts and into this Xi Jinping thought. Um, but of course, when it comes to um, party and, and government, uh, there used to be, at least Deng Xiaoping was proposing years ago to have a clear separation of party and the government. And now we're seeing that fusion. the fusion is coming back. What do you see um, of this phenomenon? I mean, you're asking me personally, as a political scientist, I think it's problematic. And um, it's problematic on a number of levels. One is that um, the problem that, um, I mean, let, let's go back to, I haven't quite explained what the party is. The function of the Communist Party is as a giant HR system, as a giant personnel system. The basic function of, this, of the Communist Party is to hold the files and select leaders for jobs so that every person in any position of leadership has a personnel file, which is held in the local party committee. And if someone leaves their job is be promoted, their personnel file has to be vetted by the next highest level up and approved. And they get to select the candidates for all positions. In fact, Xi Jinping as general secretary apparently vetted all the 300 files of the members of the Central Committee before the last party Congress. He personally read every file and said, this one goes, this one doesn't, you know. And, um, okay, so that's it's a giant personnel system. Now the problem is that the government is the executive and its function is to administer. And uh, the job of the party supposedly is to give policy direction. So you, I mean, what, what Deng Xiaoping was concerned about is that people who didn't know administration were being, were telling people how to administer, and he thought that this was dysfunctional. And it is certainly true that, um, although there, there are many problems in Chinese governance before Xi Jinping came to power, um, what was definitely true over the last 20 years is that most government officials seem to be competent and competent in their in their own sphere of administration. So what you have now is a system where potentially there's always somebody looking over your shoulder. In which case, can how well do you do your job if you're not sure if you will be second guessed by somebody else? And themselves also the, the party itself complains, if you read the People's Daily, if you read the party, is that you know, this problem of boots will away, people not doing their job. 
Well, obviously, if you're not sure if you will be punished for for doing things within your field class, you're not clear if somebody's looking over it, you might be afraid to do your job. And and that might be a problem that comes out of this system. And you know, in some sense, you know, I read the people's in, in, read the people's daily every day. The people's daily every day has Xi Jinping's speeches at the top. I mean, he seems to be giving an important speech every other day. Now, how can one person be an expert on everything? That's why there's also this app <laughs> for people to follow. So, so this is this is something which is problematic. On the other hand, he's removed his term limit as president, so we do. Um, so, and it's not, and that also is something that Deng Xiaoping was very concerned about. Um, he put these term limits in because he really believed that his predecessor Mao Zedong had stayed too long and was no longer competent to lead the country when it's too old. And this creates problems at two levels, both that people might get too old and not, and their decision-making power may be impaired. And also you then, if you have uncertainty over the um, succession, then that creates conflict within the party. Um, and so in some sense, this is, this is a problem. Mm -hmm. So there's not a current uh, process to... Yeah, uh, the process has been somewhat impaired. Right. Exactly. So, of course, China has been um, rising on the global stage and for some time, and now, of course, facing some difficulties, uh, especially the trade dispute with the U.S., and but also challenges by uh, other developing economies, um, but also it faces... Uh, problems within China and has always been. Uh, it's a big country, it's a complex country, a lot of issues. So um, what do you see as this Chinese Communist Party uh, leading China already um, for many decades and how is the party going to perhaps adapt to this new situation and to maybe survive uh, in the uh, coming future and first to tackle international problems, but also to manage domestic issues. Well, that's the problem. I mean, when you have a system which is a, a strict pyramid that ends in one person, there is one address for all the problems and one person who has to make all the correct decisions. And there, therefore, there is not, there's less room for debate and compromise and maybe trying a different path. On the other hand, you have a, there's an ironic situation right now. Um, over the last couple of years, especially beginning with the trade frictions rising with the United States last spring, there was a lot of criticism, usually not by name, about the arrogance of the leadership or in Xi Jinping in particular. And it reached a crescendo around last summer. But the problem was many people believe that, that China, had, in some sense, by being asserting its leadership globally, had put a target on its back. And so that it was uh, easy, therefore, to, for the United States to target the China because of its claims for leadership. Now, this criticism was broadly shared among many senior people at all levels. The problem came when it came to trying to look for an alternative because Xi Jinping was able to persuade people that look, no matter what we do, 
as long as we rise, the United States will try to strangle us. And so, what is your answer? If, we, is, if, if for example, if we liberalize among American lives, we surrender to, do we surrender to the Americans? Because nobody says we're going to surrender to the Americans. And besides which, he has what you might call, this pun is intended, the Trump card. If the, if the pressure is coming from the United States, and it's coming directly from President Donald Trump, who has the best relationship with, with Donald Trump? Xi Jinping has the best relationship. So what came from, from a situation where he was, in a sense, on the defensive, you know, and it, wasn't, it didn't show publicly, he ends up basically winning, winning the, at the card table. Because nobody dared, at the one hand, to say, because anybody who would challenge him would have to come up with a better solution. And there was no easier solution available. And he's the one who has the best relationship with the United States. So in the end, it came up that he ended up with more power rather than less power. Now, the question is, can he solve the problem? So he has more power as long as he and Donald Trump can reach a deal and the Chinese economy keeps growing um, and there is no major social dislocation. But if there is no deal and the economy suffers, there's only one person to blame. And so um, this is the situation that China's in, and we'll be, you know, we can only watch and see what will happen over the next few years and months. For sure. Um, but this kind of China and the U.S., the existing global superpower, and then the rising superpower, uh, this rivalry, the strategic rivalry, is probably going to be around for a long, long while, even when this trade dispute somehow, if it's resolved. Well, this is the decision. So how does well, that, You know, the interesting thing is, you know, anybody who looks at the United States today, looks at Washington today, it's deeply polarized. But there is one issue which unites from the left wing of the Democratic Party to the right wing of the Republican Party, push back China. It's the one issue of unity. So, no so even if President Trump has a deal with Xi Jinping in the next month or so, he'll be criticized by the Democrats, saying he doesn't do enough. And from some right wing members of the Republican Party. So this will not end the situation because the, the basic underlying issue is whether the United States can see itself as not being a global leader and whether there is any way or mechanism for the two countries to both play a role on the international stage where one does not feel threatened by the other. So do you see that the Chinese Communist Party can, I mean, after surviving already almost a century, can still adapt and adopt new norms and somehow continue to lead country? The Chinese Communist Party has adapted in the sense, and it, it, the most I suppose the most spectacular adaptation is adaptation to the market. Now, there are some problems with its adaptation today and which are exacerbated by this trend towards centralization. 
market societies are based on decentralized decision making and competition. If you have centralization and decent centralization, decentralization are are contradictions. And already again last fall, one of the things that we know, the Chinese Communist Party recognizes that deepening reform requires giving more authority to market actors, more authority to private industry to give them access to to capital through the banking system, etc. But the centralization of government, in some sense, starts it, and also the whole notion of uh, the authority of private uh, property is under question if the party controls everything. So these are underlying problems. It's quite apart from whatever goes on with the United States. So how China will manage that? I mean, there are good reasons for some degree of centralization after the 18th Party Congress when Xi Jinping came to power. Clearly, there was a fragmentation of power in the latter stages of the Hu Jintao administration. Um, people in Chinese talked about the Zhu Hou, the, the, the feudal barons, if you like, the, who were dividing up the spoils among themselves and nobody could tell them what to do. But clearly, you needed to have some solution to that problem. But the question is, have we gone, have we, has it gone way too far? And uh, to use a, a position from Western mythology, is this you know, is centralization now going to kill the goose that lays the golden egg? And clearly the Communist Party doesn't want to kill the goose that lays the golden egg because the golden egg keeps it in power. But on the other hand, how far can this go without, without beginning to uh, damage the underlying fabric of, chi of China's success? That's indeed a very large, very big challenge. And then to manage the domestic issues, economic growth and uh, environmental issues and continuing the uh, corruption uh, um, campaign, anti-corruption campaign. Let me add one thing. One of the reasons why China has been so successful under Deng Xiaoping and then before was because it allowed for local experimentation and, and different and trying out different things and if it succeeded we followed the success but with this trend towards centralization you have less room for experimentation and learning from from experiments so that's another issue that may come this is centralization you have the 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 danger as they used to talk about in the Mao days that like, cutting with one knife whereas the the post Mao reforms have been one of Local experimentation, or doing things according to according to local circumstances. How much of that has been damaged by the current trend centralization? We will have to see. Indeed, very interesting. And um, uh, earlier, you, you did mention the, uh, the Communist Party members. Many of them come from uh, university campuses. Uh, they're recruited either at the uh, undergrad level or at the graduate level. And recently, there's also uh, news just coming out this in the past two weeks that. Uh, very well-known professor at the Tsinghua University uh, yeah. was removed uh, from his uh, position because of his uh, criticism, uh, critical views of, uh, of the yeah. party and of, of the government. So do you see there's a, just more prominence of uh, the party on campus now? Yes, of course. Going back to what I said about uh, Xi Jinping's ideas about ideology, clearly 
I mean, and there's been a fairly conservative, he doesn't want liberal ideas to flourish. I mean, he, essentially, he wants to subsidize these three elements that I talked about, the Chinese tradition, the revolutionary tradition, and socialism with Chinese characteristics should be a complete alternative to liberalism. And liberalism is a foreign and perhaps enemy ideology. And there has been a public and well-noted thing to criticize liberalisms and liberalism on campus. In some cases, of particular professors have been singled out, sometimes even Zhubao, even some, sometimes even um, informed on by students in their classroom and then criticized, in some cases fired. Again, going back to what I said earlier, can China continue to adapt and succeed if critical voices are silenced and repressed? Is there a danger that China could become more isolated uh, in comparison to more globalized? Yes, I mean, we saw the speech by U.S. Vice President Pence uh, last October, the Hudson speech, where it's essentially he calls for a kind of new Cold War, a decoupling with China, from severing the ties that link uh, the United States and China, and to try to isolate China from the rest of the world. Clearly, China will not succeed, and even Xi Jinping knows this. On the other hand, I mean, this is the dilemma is, his bottom line, if you like, is to preserve the leadership of the Communist Party and Chinese government's system based on the leadership of the, of the Communist Party. What he obviously feels is that liberalism undermines that very notion of a leading role for the Communist Party. So at least domestically he's always emphasizing the difference between China's governance structure and Western liberal structure. Now that's for the domestic audience. And internationally, he then talks about inclusiveness, pluralism, etc. But the problem is that people outside can also listen to what's going on inside and see what's going on inside. And it's not clear how you can maintain these radically different discourses about how society should work internally and how you want to fit into international society internationally. And therefore, Clearly, he, Xi Jinping's ideological turn gives ammunition to those people who would criticize China. That's really fascinating. Thank you so much, Professor Patio, for uh, joining us for the podcast today. You're very welcome. <laughs>